Um, this evening, what we're going to do together is begin a new short, very short sermon series. That's the plan. So from this point on, when it's my turn uh, to preach in the evening services, what we're going to do is we're going to look together as the church at some of the most familiar stories in the Bible, the most familiar uh, accounts, especially in the Old Testament. So what are we talking about there? We're talking about, you know, David and Goliath, and uh, we're talking about uh, David, Daniel, we're talking about Gideon's fleece, Joseph's coat of many colors, the real A-list stuff, the most familiar uh, material and most familiar uh, stories. Now, why is that the plan? Why are we going to have this short sermon series looking at some of these uh, most familiar stories? Well, there's lots of great reasons why we should look at this. They're really accessible, aren't they? We can invite uh, our children, we can invite visitors to come and to hear these stories. But I think primarily the reason I want to do this is to be blunt with you and frank with you. I'm not sure that we handle these well-known stories all that well in the life of the church don't necessarily, I'm not singling out London City Presbyterian Church, but widely speaking, I'm not sure that we handle the really familiar accounts particularly well. And maybe as soon as I say that to you, maybe you see at least what I'm getting at, do you? Consider how we, for instance, for example, how we teach these well-known stories to children. Let's go for an example, shall we? Let's take Daniel in the lion's den. We all know that story, right? We do. How do we teach that to children in the home, or how do we teach that story in Sunday school? Maybe you know what it's like, what we tend to do, maybe through a worksheet, if it's a Sunday school, or maybe just with the Bible in our hands. We'll try and teach the children the story, the details of the account. We'll go through it, we'll maybe read it, maybe skim over, we'll, we'll go through it. But then what happens at the end of that? We give the children a moralistic lesson, a moral truth from that portion of Scripture. So Daniel in the lion's den, the end of it, what do we do? We tell the children, be brave. In danger, you trust. You be courageous. You you trust. Dare be Daniel. That's the message, boys and girls. That's the message of this text. But is it? Is that the message of that portion of Scripture? Is it, friends? I mean, okay, there's an element of truth in that, but are these most evocative and well-known stories, are they not there to teach us something about God? Are these well-known stories right the way through Scripture, are they not there to teach us something of Christ and his redemptive work, you see? But all of this, so we're going to consider famous stories, all of this kind of raises really an inevitable and uh, head-scratching question, at least for me, where are we going to start with all of this? Where do we start when we're thinking about well-known portions of Scripture? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> well, I don't know if you've ever seen or you own or possess a children's Bible. Yeah, you got them at home, perhaps, some of you? You remember them, some of you, from your youth? The Lion's Storybook Bible or something like that? You, you, if you do, if you've seen these, you know that very often they do not begin uh, so much with the creation story. Where do they begin? Very often they begin with the Garden of Eden, don't they? You know it, right? If you've seen a storybook Bible, you open it up. First page, what's the first illustration? There's the garden. And it's a cartoon picture of some trees. And there'll be a giraffe poking his head out from behind the bush. And there'll be this nice drawing of Adam and Eve. And they'll have some appropriately placed leaves. 
won't they? And Adam and Eve will be meeting each other for the first time. That's where these storybook Bibles begin. And to be honest with you, tonight that's where I want us to start. In short, this evening, I want us to consider the creation of woman. Okay, so with this laid out before us, uh, you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to this section of Scripture. It is going to help all of us if we have this portion of Scripture open. So let me give you it again. So it's Genesis 2, 18 to 25, and it is on page 2 of the ESV Bible. So switch on your Bible or open your Bible to Genesis 2. As we consider the first thing that I want us to note here, and that is woman as a suitable companion. So that's the first thing that we've got to think about. Woman as a suitable, suitable companion. Okay. Um, I'm sure all of us in the room, even the boys and girls, sure all of us at one stage or another have read a novel, read a book that has an incredibly striking and arresting opening phrase. We've done that, you know, open a novel and you're just grabbed immediately by the opening phrase. A few years ago, I uh, had an example in a sermon of an Ian Banks book, I think it was, and it had an opening phrase that just, <laughs> just it, was, it was jarring. This opening phrase just came out and grabbed me because the opening phrase of the book is this. It said, it all happened the day my grandmother exploded. <laughs> that was the opening line of the book. And immediately, you know, it's just jarring and it gets you, doesn't it, immediately. Well, isn't there something like that this evening? Because I think, again, everybody in the room, we all know the repetition that we've been hearing in Genesis 1. Isn't that right? Like, we all know that line that's repeated time and time again in Genesis 1. What is it? God makes light, and he saw that it was good, yeah. And, and God makes the birds of the sky, and he saw that it was good. And then you look at this, look at verse 18. And you see, like, for the very, very first time in all of Scripture, in all of the Bible, for the first time, we learn that something is not good, and look, look at it. Like, what is it that's not good? Do you notice it's not good that man should be alone? Man is made... As a social creature by God, man is made for fellowship, for community, for companionship. Now, if, <laughs> I know it's not the case, but if you have never read Genesis 2 in your life, can I ask you this, what would you expect to happen now? So God has just declared that something is not good. It's not good for man. What would you expect to read as you go down? You would expect, bang! God rectifies that situation. Like immediately you would expect, okay, not good for man to be alone, right? Let's get some companions for, for, for man for fellowship. And you've noticed, haven't you, as you've skimmed down that that is not, it doesn't happen immediately. And you're going to have to excuse my children if they begin to start singing just now because my children's favorite song at the moment is the Bob Dylan track, Man Gave Name. To all the animals. Okay, so don't start singing. Don't embarrass uh, yourselves. But you see why they might, because that's what happens here. Man gives name to all of the animals. Now, stay with me a second. Why? Why does this happen like this? 
Why does God not immediately create a companion for Adam? Why is it at this point that God brings all of these animals to Adam to name? Have you ever thought about it? Do you see? Is it just so he exercises dominion? Do you not see what's happening here is that there is an intensification of the longing for Adam. An intensification of the need, if we'll allow that. You can see it, can't you? Adam's there. God brings him a tiger. And Adam knows it's not good for me. But he sees the tiger and it's a wonderful thing. But he speaks to the tiger and the tiger doesn't speak back. And then the goat comes past and Adam's like, wow, this is a cool looking thing. This goat, but speaks to it and there's nothing back. Doesn't look like him, doesn't act like him. You see this intensification of longing, not good for me to be alone. And it kind of grows and it builds until this point in verse 20. Do you see it? And it's, it's almost sad. It's almost it's sad. But do you see it? All the animals pass by. Imagine how long that took to name all of the animals. They all pass by and they all pass by. And we read, what is it for Adam? Nothing found. No suitable companion. No fit helper. You see, almost sad. What's the elephant in the room? You all know the story. <laughs> Everyone, from the youngest to the oldest in here, we all know the story really well. And so you don't need me to tell you that as we work through this story, it's at this point that we hit the apex, don't we? We hit the climax of this story. Because what happens now? You know, it's not good for me to be alone. Animals need what happens now. God creates woman. It's the apex of this story, isn't it? It's the pinnacle of the whole thing. But would you look with me at verse 21 to see how God does it? Let's look at it. Look at it, verse 21. You find it? You got it? Do you see, first of all, God causes Adam to fall asleep. There's all these daggers, isn't there? There's that mystery there. Like man is not enabled, permitted to see God at work in his creative power in a sense. Adam falls asleep. But then look at this, God acts almost as a surgeon. Do you you see it? But what he does is he takes Adam and he splits him down the side, doesn't he? He opens up his side and how does he create? He creates woman from, from man's rib. From his rib. I mean, I know you've heard that a million times. Like maybe some of you from, you know, from a few months old onwards, your parents have taught you this. You know, women created from the rib. Have you ever wrestled with it? I mean, have you from the rib? What's going on? Why is the woman created from man's rib? Do you see the answer? Do you? God creates women from man's rib to ensure that last is an entirely suitable companion. For man. Woman, not created from the dust. Not created from the ground like all of the other these animals. Not created from the ground. But created from man's rib to be of the same fabric. You know, the same composition. The same constitution as man. No wonder. Did you see it? No wonder. Adam claps eyes on Eve. And what happens? He bursts in this song. No wonder. This is just an amazing just wave of relief in Genesis 2. He cries out, at last, at last, born of my bone, flesh of my flesh, at last there is a suitable companion for man. Now, 
you know that idea of a little kid in a sweet shop? You know, a little kid, he goes in the sweet shop and he's just looking around and he's got a fiver to spend. <laughs> and he's looking around and there's just so much good stuff and he can't decide because there's just so many goodies, you know? So many sweets. That's the preacher with the early chapters of Genesis. <laughs> I mean, there's just so much good stuff and so many implications. But maybe we've got time just to look at two at this point. See, I think very seriously that there is an implication of Genesis 2 for the life of our church and the life of London City Presbyterian Church. Because what is that opening phrase? And look at it again and read it in verse 18. It is not good for man to be alone. And I know, of course, primarily this speaks of marriage, it speaks of the relationship between men and women, but isn't there more here too? Because you just think about where you're sitting, think about where we live, the age we live in. I mean, it is a violently individualistic place in society that we live, isn't it? Everything is trying to break community up and everything is about our phones and making it individual and cutting us off. And look where we live. We live in just the most horribly lonely city, don't we? Millions of very, very lonely people. And what we learn in here, man is made for fellowship, friendship, companionship, community, communion. Friends, you see it? Isn't there an implication for our church? Don't we need to think about this actively as a church? Don't we actually, as the people of God, don't we need to try and meet that need? And so I ask you bluntly, I know, how many people did you invite into your home over the last fortnight? How many? How many of the potentially really lonely people of our city How many of the potentially really lonely people of our church have you met up with even in the past seven days? Not good for man to be alone. Surely there is an application and implication for us. One implication. Second implication. Yeah. I'm going to go there. There's an implication here for our opposition to same-sex marriage. I know, like, as, as soon as I say that, um, We panic, I think, a little bit, don't we? I've just said that we oppose same-sex marriage. And even by saying that, some shackles might go up, and certainly we're open to abuse and opposition for saying that. But we are a Bible-believing church. And so we oppose and have to oppose same-sex marriage. Now, You might come back at me and and, and say, well, why do we? And there's a plethora of reasons, and we do not have time to go into them. They're all rooted in the inerrant word of God here. But do we not see even a hint or a reason why we should oppose same-sex marriage from Genesis chapter 2? How is woman made? Woman is made from man's rib. A part of man is taken up a way to form and create women. Friends, part of the reason that we must oppose same-sex marriage is because it cannot and will not ever fulfill. Same-sex marriage will never satisfy. It's not until woman is brought to man 
And it's not until man is restored with his rib that man is made whole and one. We surely see in Genesis chapter 2 that it is woman and it is woman alone who is a suitable lifelong partner for man. Second thing we see here is that is woman as an equal partner. So the first one was what? It was woman as a suitable companion. Second thing is woman as an equal partner. Now, Harrison's with me on this, I'm sure. I didn't check, but just pretend even if it's not the case. Okay, but one of the reasons that uh, LCPC is a pleasurable place to preach, an enjoyable place to preach, it is, isn't it? Yes. Okay, good. Right answer. Uh, One of the reasons that it is a pleasurable uh, place to preach is because of how culturally uh, switched on this congregation is. How culturally switched on. I'm not trying to flatter you, okay? Really, I am not trying to do that. But it's true, isn't it? As a a congregation living and uh, working in the center of London, finger on the pulse when it comes to society and culture, okay? So because of that, if we know anything at all, we know that there is a ferocious uh, battle of the sexes that has taken place in our society, in our culture today. We know that, don't we? A battle of the sexes. In fact, in our culture today, what I think would previously have been viewed as really quite, you know what, really quite radical feminist thought is today much more culturally acceptable. So you're with me, whether you agree with the idea or not, you're with me, aren't you, that previous generations, what they would have viewed as being radical feminism as today's more mainstream, radical feminist thought and progressive values much more mainstream and acceptable than in previous generations. Now, whether you think that's okay or not, that's the way that our society is. I'm sure you would agree with that. Now, such gender warfare, I think poses a couple of uh, opposing dangers for you and me, for the people of God. Here's the first one. Uh, With pressure from progressive values, feminist thinking, comes the danger of capitulation for the people of God and for the church. That's an obvious one, is it not? Friends, you know, the pressure is on. And what happens to the church? The church capitulates. The church holds its hands up, throws out the word of God, and holds, throws out God-ordained gender roles. That's one danger, capitulation. What's the other danger, though? The pressure on us from society that's changing, progressive values, feminist thought. The danger is actually to react too far the other way. Now, if you're on social media... You follow some prominent Christian voices in the States and over here. Maybe you've seen some of that, you know, a bit of anger at progressive values. You know, if you're going to tell me that women are superior to men, I'm going to get angry about that. I'm going to swing too far the other way. I'm going to overinterpret scripture. I'm even going to begin to demean women and devalue women. Well, in such a ferocious battleground, you and I have to be pretty clear about what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says. So here, let me start with the conclusion and we'll we'll get to why I'm saying this. Please listen. 
And scripturally, it's got to be the case, doesn't it, that though there are differences in gender roles, differences in the home, differences in church, differences to be celebrated, though there are differences in the early chapters of Genesis, what you and I see is that women are equal to men in dignity and value before God. Does everybody hear it? Did the boys and girls hear it? Did you? No, they didn't. They're doing the worksheet. They're drawing. They didn't listen. Listen. Though there are differences in gender roles between men and women, the Bible in the early chapters of Genesis makes clear that women are equal to men in dignity and worth. Now, that's one thing. It's fine for a minister to stand up and say that. Where do we see that in Scripture? Can I, can I show you very briefly just one or two things here that, that back up this equality? First of all, let's think about the background to what we're looking at. So can I ask you to do this? If you look at chapter 1, verse 27. So everybody get it? Please show it to the kids that are sitting near to you. Genesis 1, verse 27. Everybody got it? Ready to go with it? So what do we read? We see, so God created who? God created man in his own image. Man in his own image. So I'm asking you who is in view there. Right? Well, lots of people will say, well, that means <laughs> that it is men who are created in the image of God. Men are created in the image of God. Women not created in the image of God. That's this men infused with his dignity and worth and woman created in order just to pick up his washing and do his ironing. Not created in the image of God at all. Right? Now, is that correct? Well, actually, no. Now, if we were to look at Genesis 5, that quotes and reaffirms that, Genesis 5 makes it clear that it's actually women and men. Women and men fall under this category of man here. Do you see what I'm saying to you? It is actually, in Genesis 1.27, the idea of humanity, human life that is created in the image of God. Human life created in the image of God. Now, is that exciting? should be exciting. Does it change anything? It should change stuff. What does it mean? It means that we should make sure that we treat women, view women with dignity and honor. Why? Because female life too is created in the image of our triune God. So we see equality there. We also, and I get this, I love this one. We also see this equality in the very existence of Genesis chapter 2. Because you know this, do you? I hope you know this. That in the ancient world, in antiquity, there were a whole plethora of creation stories. Do we know that? Whole host of creation stories in the ancient world. So the Babylonians had creation stories. The Egyptians had loads of creation stories. Loads and loads and loads. We knew that, right? Do you know what I love? You know I think is really fascinating? If you look into the ancient world, outside of the Bible, I think I'm right in saying... You can find no account of the creation of woman. You hear that? Outside of scripture, no other story. And you, you know, you know the reason for that, don't you? Of course you do. To the ancients, women were hopeless. Who cares? The ancient world says women are inferior. They're only, well, just, you know, unequal. We don't, we're not going to spill ink over women. And what do we have here? 
What does our almighty God show us to be true? What does God do? He does not just write Genesis 2. But think about it. It's so beautiful, isn't it? This account, it's not even brief. I mean, it's a detailed account. It's a colorful account. I mean, God in this account is taking so much time to build woman and sculpt woman. And, and, and it's, it's glorious, isn't it? Do you see the very existence of Genesis 2? It speaks volumes to us and speaks of the worth of women. So there's the background to the text. There's the existence of Genesis 2. But then the most important one and the last one We see equality, I think, here in the terminology of Genesis 2. Let me ask you to do this. Do it with me. Look at the end of verse 18. Look at the the end of verse 18. Oh, there's an explosive term, isn't there? Isn't there? There is, especially depending on which version of the Bible that you've got in front of you here. So what, how is woman made? What is woman to do? Woman is made as man's helper. Is anybody reading the King James Version? Has anyone got the authorized version? Maybe, you know, it gets people shackles up. It's authorized version will say that woman is made as man's help meet. Help meet. Now, people hate that term. Like some people absolutely, women love that idea. Woman made us help me as a helper, but is it right to hate that term? Well, we have to, you know, call a spade a spade here. It does speak to a difference in gender and gender roles. Biblically speaking, you cannot say that a man is created as a woman's helper. There's different roles. Okay, but this is what I want you to get. That term helper in no way, shape, or form suggests any sort of inferiority or inequality. Does everyone hear it? The term helper in no way, shape, or form suggests inequality, inferiority. How can I say that to you? Did anyone get it? What did we sing a minute ago? Psalm 54. We sang that very term ascribed to the Almighty God. You see it? Is there any inferiority in helper men? God is your help. Now, of course, we have to apply this, right? We have to do something. But maybe, maybe this will surprise you where we go with the application. Because maybe, what would you expect to do just now? We speak to the ladies of the congregation, right? We could do that. You could speak to the women in here and say, how happy you should be. God today values you. You should rejoice in this. But I'm not going to speak to the women. I want to speak to the guys. Men, I want to say this to you. Surely you see from Genesis chapter 2 that you and me, we must value the women in our lives. Let me just unpack it very briefly. Let me speak to the boys, the young boys in the church. So if you're doing anything, just listen to me for a moment. You know what this means for you? This means that at school, when you're at school, you must treat the girls in your class and the girls in your school with utmost care and honor and be polite to them. It also means that when you are in your home, if you have sisters, you must treat them very carefully and with honor. And I think most of all, Bob, what it means is you must respect your mother. You must respect your mom. 
but to those who are not so young. And especially, guys, if you are a husband, surely it is the case that you are challenged by Genesis chapter 2, are you not? What do we see here? You and I, you know what it's like, the tension in the home, how tempted we can be to mistreat our wife. What does this say to us? Surely it says that we must love our wife, we must care for our wife, and we must always view our wife as an equal to us before the Lord our God. So we see woman as a suitable companion. We see her as an equal partner. And then much more briefly and in conclusion, we see woman as a gospel picture. Woman as a gospel picture. I don't know if I asked you this recently or not. I can't work it out. But do you like weddings? Did I ask you that recently? Do you like weddings? I uh, used to just loathe weddings when I was younger. Really did. I don't know why. Whether I was just having to dress formally. Maybe that was it, you know? I don't know what it was. I didn't like weddings at all. And I've completely gone the other direction. I really love a wedding now. Maybe it's because as a minister I've got a role usually in a wedding. Or maybe it is just that I am getting old and sentimental. But I love a good wedding. Maybe that is it. Well, again, next elephant in the room, if you like. What are we dealing with here? Tonight is not just the creation of women, is it? What's this section? This section is the very institution of marriage. Now, do you see that? Do you, do you buy that? Do, do you see it from the portion of Scripture? Don't you love how God almost plays the role of the father of the bride <laughs> in Genesis 2? Doesn't he? Like, do you see how what he does? He, he creates Eve, but then God is said to bring the bride to Adam. It's very ceremonial, isn't it? And then you must have noticed near the end of the section that these, this couple, they come together and become one flesh, don't they? And then we think about how the New Testament deals with Genesis 2. And what does it do? Jesus looks back, views it, he speaks of it when he's talking about divorce and marriage. I don't think anyone's going to argue with me. What we see here is the institution of marriage. Now, what I want you to do, and we're closing with this, so you'll do it with me, I know. Look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. It's a lovely thing, because surely what we see there is what has begun, this marriage. The marriage is here viewed by God as being... I think the highest form of interhuman, interpersonal relationship. Isn't that right? Do you see it? That, that Adam and Eve are now, that the married couple, if you like, are to move away from their mother, move away from their father, that marriage isn't just instituted here, that it's instituted up here. Like it's an elevated institution to, to God. It's infused with dignity and honor. And so the question that I want to address just as we close here is, Why? Like, why does God do this? I mean, everybody in the room understands, right, that in creation, God's got a blank page in front of him in a sense. He's the creator God. And so God can work human relationships out however God chooses to work them out. 
And what does God do? But God says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have one man, one woman in this elevated situation, this elevated relationship, a lifelong relationship. Why does God do that? Now, you know as well as I do, there's lots of different answers, okay, you know, for child reading and and for our own personal flourishing and so forth, but this is the bottom line, surely. God creates marriage, institutes marriage like this. Why? To provide for you, even tonight, a picture of union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that it? Why does God create marriage? What is the bottom line here? God is portraying for us a picture of his redemptive work and what he will do and what he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you, especially if you're a Christian in here, what is that that should bring joy to your heart? What is it that Christ Jesus has done? If you look at it through the lens of marriage, what has Christ done? He could talk about his love, right? He could talk about the fact that he loved his bride, the church, before we loved him. And you could definitely talk about Christ's preparation, his gospel preparation. What has the bridegroom done? He's prepared this banquet. Right now, a banquet is prepared. All the place settings, all the name tags for his church, for the bride. We could talk about the love, the preparations. But do we not, here now in Genesis 2, do we not see something of Christ's work? What was it? Andrew Bonner said, love it. He said that as Adam had to have his eyes closed in sleep to bring forth his wife. So the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross had to have his eyes closed in death to create his bride, the church. And can we not even add to that? As Adam in Genesis 2 has had his side opened to create Eve, what has the Lord Jesus Christ done? What do we look at at Marianne's wedding? Do you remember? The Lord Jesus Christ on his sin-bearing death on the cross through the thrust of a Roman spear on that cross, the Lord Jesus Christ has had his side opened to create his spouse, to create his bride, to create his now eternal companion, his suitable companion, the church. Friends, as in all of these wonderfully famous stories we will look at in Genesis 2, it's not sheer moralism. Even in Genesis, we are pointed by God to Calvary. We are pointed to what Christ Jesus has done. I pray that this evening as you go, you look again to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that if you do not have a saving relationship in Jesus, that you consider these matters that you look at the gospel through the lens of marriage this evening and you see what God offers in the gospel. He offers union with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the gospel, the Lord God, he offers you love, a love that is committed and it is a love in Christ that saves Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we ask uh, for your forgiveness 
uh, for uh, how flippantly we very often uh, view the opening chapters of Genesis, how we very often adopt the thinking of the world when we look at these creation accounts. Lord, as men, here we also pray for your forgiveness for the times that we have not treated uh, women with the dignity and worth that they are due be made in your image. That ultimately, Lord God, we praise you for this reason that you've created marriage to point us to the beautiful union that we enjoy with Christ. We are, by repentance of faith, by your grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, tonight, we are in Christ. And we praise you for that union. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.